This is Reimagining Higher Education, your go-to podcast with remarkable education leaders, sharing personal stories from their experience in and around the sector, including reflection and hope for progress with your host, Dr. Noreen Golfman, former provost and vice president academic at Memorial University in St. John's, Newfoundland, and inaugural member of Studiosity's Academic Advisory Board in Canada. We collectively recognize that this podcast's hosts and guests have recorded this interview from across Turtle Island on the unceded and traditional territories of many nations in what we now know as Canada. We acknowledge past and current custodians of this land. Welcome. Today I've got the great pleasure of connecting with Ainsley Gary, who is the current Vice President of Students at the University of British Columbia here in Canada. And Ainsley brings over, I should think, two decades or more maybe of experience in higher education with previous roles, including Vice President for Students at Auburn University and as well as at the University of Southern California. So welcome, and thanks so much for taking the time out of what I'm sure is a very, very busy schedule in your life. Um, This is great for our Reimagining Higher Education podcast to have somebody like you to talk to with tons of experience. And before we, you know, have that chat, maybe um, I can ask you to Tell us, how do you introduce yourself these days and maybe say something about yourself? Noreen, thank you so much. And it's such a pleasure to meet you and it's such a pleasure to have this opportunity to talk about things that matter to both of us. So I'm excited for this conversation. So I think you did a really great job of providing some background. I've been in higher ed administration for more than two decades now. Um, went to school at the University of Florida as an undergrad, or there I earned my bachelor's, master's, and doctorate, doctorate in college administration, and then went to work around the country in college administration, working at Southern Methodist University, Temple University in Philadelphia, the University of Arkansas. Then I was the vice president for students at Auburn University, served in the same capacity at the University of Southern California. And now I'm the vice president for students at the University of British Columbia. So I've been in the capacity as a vice president for the past 15 years and completely love working with students. I'll give some of my kind of undergraduate graduate background. So after I completed my bachelor's in economics, went off to work into retail and hated it, right? That that experience has catapulted me right back to graduate school. And I started off in a graduate program by saying, I want to help young adults make meaning out of life. What degree program is that? And they said, oh, sounds like you'd be interested in higher ed administration. I wasn't familiar with the field. I didn't know anybody in the field other than um, I went to university and many of the people that most impacted my life were the, the dean of students and academic advisors and financial aid advisors. While I was a student, I didn't realize this was a profession. Mm-hmm. Um, and all the right words fit. Young adults, helping them find purpose and meaning, counseling, higher ed administration. So that's become my path for the past 25 years. And um, I am doing exactly what God designed me to do. And I love it. Man, you're lucky, you know, as a uh, retired or recovering senior administrator, I have to say that uh, working with students is what brought me into professional academic life. And um, 
not everybody gets to work so closely with students in that capacity. So you, you've done some very smart moves, I, I should you. think. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we asked you to choose an object. It's a bit of a funny question, but it's a way of opening up something about you. Uh, that means something special to you or that maybe embodies your experience in some way. Yeah. So what have you got? So for the past um, maybe three to five years, I have been working in college administration with a real interest in um, moving the profession forward and being a better senior administrator and trying to understand um, rather than being in a position where we are responding to student demand, student issues, student crisis, I've constantly been thinking about how, how do we prepare for what's to come and how are we more future oriented and more proactive about issues going around. So back in 2013, 2015, um, I was studying issues around campus protests and what students were looking for with regard to issues of equity, diversity, and inclusion on campus. I facilitated some of those conversations at the University of Southern California by helping students and administrators put the pieces together of what the demands were. But again, I felt like we were in a responsive mode. Um, then I thought, what's the next issue? Um, what's the next issue that I should be prepared for? And perhaps even um, dive into the literature to the point where I can prepare my professional colleagues that this is coming next. We should be prepared with a playbook to challenge it, to be involved in it, to be thoughtful about it, rather than constantly feeling on our heels and we're reacting to things that we aren't completely aware of. So what I bring today is um, my latest work in this space is a book um, entitled Washington Next. And it's about disputed monuments, honorees, and symbols on campus. Um, this was a passion project for me. Mm. Um, so back in 2015, after we were working with students on student demands around equity, diversity, and inclusion, I saw next these debates around issues of campus memorialization. I saw in many Southern institutions, um, Confederate leaders, segregationists, eugenics leaders, leaders who advocated for lynching and massacres, leaders who were opposed to anti-lynching laws, their names were adorned on college campuses, administration buildings, residence halls, and statues were throughout cities around the South um, honoring leaders of the Confederacy, leaders who were active segregationist governors, governors who stood in front of schoolhouse doors and said, segregation now, segregation forever, and segregation tomorrow. And I realized this is going to be a challenge at our institutions as we continue to diversify, as we continue to say, dear students, come to our universities, we welcome the world. And then we ask them to live in a residence hall that is named after a segregationist, that is named after a person that said, we don't want you here. This is hypocrisy in its definition. This does not work for the students who are far more conscious about these issues of equity, diversity, and inclusion. So I went to work on figuring out what would that look like and, and pull together this piece, Washington Next, to help universities grapple with the issue. The book is not about you must remove all memorials. Mm -hmm. It's about how do you have this difficult conversation? Because in some cases, the disputed memorial is the name of the university. Mm -hmm. It is the founder of the university. Washington and Lee University is named after first president George Washington and Robert E. Lee, the leader of the Confederate army. 
So how does Washington and Lee discuss this in a thoughtful, considerate way that, that honors the institution's history, but also lets those students who are being welcome to the institution understand what this means and deal with it in a way that they can all move forward rather than be stuck um, in the past around these issues. So I bring this book as, as, as a product of my efforts, but also it is my passion right now. Wow, that is so interesting. I, I'm personally very interested in the whole subject of memorializing, memorialization. So I, I have to ask you, um, as a Canadian campus leader, I guess a lot of that book comes out of your experience as an educator, even as a student in a U.S. context. And it's not like we're not having the same kinds of conversations, but there isn't the same uh, intensity of racial history, um, isn't the same maybe self-consciousness about that kind of thing. You know, Ryerson University is now the Toronto Metropolitan University. So that marks a big change. And it's a kind of first step yes. towards that kind of thing in this country. But I wonder on your campus, and, or maybe in the Canadian landscape, such as you experience it, and what's the carryover from that work that you yeah. see? Noreen, thanks for that question. I think it's a very insightful question. So as you acknowledge, I started this work while I was the vice president for student affairs at a US institution. And so this was prominent throughout the, in the United States. How, how do we think about these things? Um, however, these issues exist in Canada as well. Sure. Now, it is not the civil war. It's not the Confederacy. It's not segregationist governors. But many of these things also exist in Canada, the history of enslaved people, the history of indigenous people, residential school systems, uh, former premiers and prime ministers who were advocates and supporters of residential schools. Guess what? Their names are on streets throughout Canada. Their names are on academic buildings throughout Canada. So although the subject matter or the identity of the individual might be different, um, and it's not a Confederate soldier we're talking about here, but um, the issues of segregation existed in Canada. Issues Absolutely. of people existed in Canada. Issues of indigenous people, which I want to center, like I would bring that right back to the forefront, especially residential schools exist right here in Canada. And we have to do this type of thorough cleansing and examination of where is it? Is it on campus buildings? Is it street names? It's his scholarships and awards that are giving out, given out at the university. And we have to grapple here in Canada as well with these issues. I appreciate you bringing out the, one of the best examples I think is Ryerson University, mm -hmm. right? After they unraveled that, I thought it was one of the boldest decisions I've ever seen. No mm -hmm. university in the United States has changed their name as a result of the realization um, that their name is connected to slavery, the civil war, the Confederacy. But here in Canada, boy, what a bold move for Ryerson University to change their name. Uh, if yeah, you think about yeah. that, right? The financial implications <laughs> yeah. of undoing 50 years, 75 years, 100 years of being named something, mm -hmm. t-shirts, business cards, books, promotional material. How do you recruit students to your university when you go through a complete rebranding? Yeah, many universities have changed a building name or mm -hmm. a sidewalk or a street name. But to stop and say, we're going to call ourselves something completely different because of the history we just unraveled, I think is 
is a tremendous stroke of bravery. And uh, I salute Ryerson and that team that pulled together that bold report and the administration that moved forward on that recommendation. Yeah, right on. Totally agree with you. Um, so let me ask you, you said you were studying economics as a student. Mm -hmm. So that's an unusual path in my experience for somebody. And that's, you know, kind of a loaded question. Well, we don't have to go there. Anybody listening to this understands, uh, you know, what that implies. But to go from a student of economics to, um, you know, a sphere where, which is quite different. Um, what about your undergraduate experience or your experience when you were younger, kind of, how do you see it? How do you tell your story about that journey? Yeah, so I started, as, as you mentioned, with um, my degree going into economics, and I wanted to work for corporate America. I wanted to work for a Fortune 500 company, I kind of start at the ground level, work my way up the management change, and, and someday be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company in the United States. Like, that's what I wanted to do. So I thought business or economics gave me the best chance to do that. So that was 18-year-old Ainsley's aspiration. Uh, so I majored in economics, completed my degree in that space, and then went to work into retail, went right into work into retail. And boy, guess what? I was focused on moving merchandise off the shelf. We were focused on selling products. We were focused on laundry detergent and household goods. And I felt nothing about developing people. And suddenly I realized as a you know, first year manager, oh, wait a minute, I don't wake up excited about this work. And I had a lot of colleagues who did. A lot of people were very interested about how we would set up the Tide laundry detergent display so more people would purchase it. I found no excitement in this, but I understand that people are excited about it. So I'm not here to disparage that, that work and that interest. Sure. So after a year of doing that, what I learned more than anything else was what I didn't want to do. So that experience catapulted me back into graduate school. And today I have an appreciation for, go off and do that thing. Say yes to that assignment and realize what you wanna do. So I think internships and practicums and all of the things that students have a chance to do as an undergrad in their first and second year of enrollment, you know, junior and senior year, is an opportunity to find out who you are and what you don't wanna do. It's not time wasted. Or taking a class and realize, oh, I don't like this class, is an exploration of your identity and yourself. Um, so this is an opportunity to find out who you are. And, uh, but, I have found my economics degree to be one of the most helpful pieces of information because the world is run in an economic way. Universities are economic institutions. So it was no wasted time majoring in economics, but I realized that I didn't want to work for corporate America to do this work. Universities are large business organizations. So I do find the notions of supply and demand remaining important but it, it didn't force me into standing in this space. Yeah, terrific um, and unusual, I would mm -hmm. say, again, but I'm, I'm sure there's lots you can talk about that fills in some of those dots uh, or spaces between those dots. So as an educator, mm -hmm. looking at the future and looking at trends, I guess, and um, anticipating 
challenges of the future, you know, how do you go about doing that? How are you reading? How are you reading the future? Yeah. You know, educators are, as you say, a rather administrator, so responsive bound, reflex bound, right? Yeah. How do you do that? Yeah, Nori, so thank you for asking that question. It is one of the places that I spend a considerable amount of mental energy in, but as you just identified, our day-to-day -day work is so about what's happening now. What's the latest protest, the latest argument, the latest thing the university needs to deliver? And uh, it, so it's you have to be actively engaged in finding that space to meditate, reflect, think about the future, anticipate future items, and then debate those future items. I thought the COVID pandemic, um, in a way, did many of our institutions a favor by forcing us through a disruption that no one anticipated, forcing us to think of new ways of delivering higher education. So for me, I think one of the future trends that we have realized are trends related to access and opportunities at colleges and universities. So today our institutional models are very um, access limited. So our price points, our locations, our requirements of a four year investment of seat time is an opportunity cost, not only for the traditional 18, 19 year old leaving high school, but also the 25, 30, 35 year old who wants to return to advance their skills. Few of them have time for a two years of sitting two years of being outside the market to pursue a degree in its fullest. So our adult learners are coming back part-time and that part-time degree now takes three, four, five years to get done. But boy, the pandemic realized, helped us realize we can deliver education at a distance in an effective quality way. It wasn't perfect because we rushed into it. <laughs> you know, in March, everyone was told, go home and figure out how to deliver your class by the end of the term. Um, but boy, now that we are, you know, a year plus beyond that, I think we should look back at that window of time and say, what were the disruptions that we should maintain? Um, what are the, the disruptions that require us to think about innovations? What concerns me is the inelasticity of higher education. We snapped right back to who we were pre-pandemic. And it concerns me that we just lost all that learning. We just went directly back to, all right, everybody sit in the classroom. And these are the X number of students that are permitted. And students are raising their hands saying, wait a minute. Remember that lecture capture thing where you were recorded and I could watch it multiple times? Can we do that again? wait a minute, I'm a student with a disability and I had a chance to slow down the audio. I had a chance to sit in my living room and do this. Can we do that again? But so many institutions have said, nope, we are on the ground, show up and return. And it pushes so many students right back out the market to this ineffective model of education that was part of the 1600s. I would love for us to find a way to do both, to find a way to do what students enjoy, faculty enjoy, kind of the face-to-face, -face, intimate, Socratic method of education. But boy, I would also love for great universities to continue to find ways to deliver this product um, to students around the world and make access a priority rather than exclusivity. So why do you think we've jumped so quickly back to old patterns? Was it the path of least resistance? Um, 
expediency of some kind without listening to our students? What do you uh, think it was? Yeah, I also think here in the United, well, in Canada and the United States, we've been delivering education this way for 400 years. Yeah. So yeah. it's going to take more than two years of a pandemic for us to unravel what we've been doing for 400 plus years. And, you know, higher education has existed since the 1600s all over the world. And, you know, many institutions snapped right back to who they were before. So I do think it, it will take a disruptive innovator, a disruptive institution to suddenly start taking market share away from universities who've always done it this way. Mm -hmm. But universities, you know, the Harvard's, Princeton's, Yale's, McGill, University of Toronto's, UBC, are about reputation and brands. So students come to us for the solid reputation and brand. But as soon as we are faced with a competitor that disrupts reputation and brand, makes that less relevant, boy, we would be forced to find a way to compete with that competitor. And I thought the pandemic was the opening to an institution taking a bold step and, and doing something in, in an innovative way. Now look, MOOCs, people have done that, massive open online courses and, and hybrid. So I don't think anything during the pandemic was new, but what it did, it forced us into it. Um, let me take student services, for example, student counseling services for years. I've been saying, can we deliver some of this virtual because we can't meet the demand in our physical space? The counselors said, absolutely not. Students need to be face-to-face. -face. This is the only way to do it. They have to come into our offices. Well, when the pandemic hit, everybody was at home, counselors and students. And guess what? We continue to deliver student counseling services for two years almost. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. um, now we have maintained a hybrid model here at UBC where there are on-ground counseling appointments available and virtual counseling appointments available. And now counselors are saying, I wanna continue to do hybrid, right? So once we got forced into it, I think the innovation came on board. But to answer your initial question, our snapback is based on centuries of, this is how we've always done it. Yeah, and I think you're you're quite right that uh, the sphere of activity at universities that has moved forward is that counseling site because it is so one-on-one -on -one dependent or even small group dependent, and you can do that this way. Right. It's a conversation like the one right. we're having, right? So, yeah. Also, also I want to add the snapback is also an economic reality. Part of our universities are based on our ability or, or the revenue generated by housing, dining, athletics, parking, right. childcare, right. transportation. We have built an infrastructure mm -hmm. that requires participants, right? We have lots of buildings, lots of classrooms, lots of technology, um, and we need participants in that economy. Otherwise, all of this material sits unused. So I think part of the snapback to let's be back is the fact that we have an infrastructure that is dependent on that. It would, it would be like suddenly, you know, you name the corporate entity who suddenly McDonald's doesn't do hamburgers anymore. So they have an infrastructure designed to deliver hamburgers. Um, what would be their use of grills if suddenly people say they we don't eat meat anymore? Boy, they would be in a huge heap of trouble trying to figure out what to do with the infrastructure that they have that was designed to deliver that product. 
So we have an economic infrastructure that's designed to deliver a particular product, and that's what we snap back to. Indeed. Yeah, I, you know, as a, as administrator, I certainly went into the role with a lot of idealism, despite, you know, decades of being an academic, which is, you know, an experience can often grind out, grind the idealism right out of you, but I did. And um, coming, you know, eventually to an appreciation, understanding or recognition of the big hunking institutional presence, the reality of it, the big ship that's so hard to turn around, so hard to transform. So many of us do have a view to transformation yeah. and it's hard. It is hard. Yeah. Um, uh, listening to our students is a really, really important thing to do. And you have that, that advantage, yeah. I think, yeah. of being close to those conversations. Where I find um, some solace, some um, good feelings is that um, if, if we look back at higher education during our professional window of time, it's a fraction of the institution. Mm -hmm. um, but if we can remember what these universities look like in the 1960s, we'd be saying, boy, we have, this place has come a long way. I Even suppose. if we go back to the 1980s, I'm sorry, early 2000s, progress is made, it's slow, and it's over a long period of time. So it's hard for any individual's um, career span, unless your career span was 30, 40 years, to see no change. But when you look back at pictures, understand, you know, historians or talk to graduates from the, when I meet the alum who come back for their 50 year anniversary and they're saying, boy, we had one residence hall. It was for women only. And it was, you know, 300 people could live in it. Now you have 15,000 spaces in Manhattan. So then you start to appreciate how a lot has changed. The diversity okay. on our campuses. Boy, a lot has changed, right? But in the decade that you had a chance to be there, you're saying this is taking forever, right? So, and students, think about the student life cycle, right? They're here for four years. So they're completely frustrated by mm -hmm. the slowness by with the, which a university would move. But if we ever had a 20 to 30 year lens, we'd see a lot more progress than we thought was happening. Yeah, fair enough. I uh, sometimes impatient with. Uh, <laughs> the you know slow pace of change but i think that that's a useful frame mm -hmm. through which to to look at a, a longer view let's say and speaking of that um what advice would you give your younger self mm -hmm. um as a student or aspiring um ceo <laughs> um perhaps you've done you've fulfilled uh, yourself so sufficiently that there's no advice that you could think of giving you you've taken your own advice <laughs> no I often think about 18 year old Ainsley and I use him in examples to um, kind of say here's what's wrong with a particular idea that we're doing here's how 18 year old Ainsley would have seen this policy would have seen this structure right so I still remember him I still remember him vividly um, and I still remember the mistakes that he would made based on the assumptions and, and I use my younger self to think through different things 
Um, of course, some, there are many places that I miss. When I first read this question, the, the first thought that came to my mind is I would tell 18-year-old Ainsley to buy some Apple or Microsoft stock every month, even if it's $20, $25, just buy it and sit on it. Slowly buy it. When you're 18, you have a job at McDonald's or Burger King, take 25, 50 bucks and put it into the stock market and just keep doing that as if it were you had to pay a bill, right? I wish I would have thought about that. that <laughs> sure. Early. So, yeah, don't we all? Don't we all? Don't we all, right? Th this is when Microsoft and Apple stock was like $9, $10 a share, right? They were new companies trying to figure things out. And boy, I wish I was sitting on a couple thousand shares of that. But be beyond that, one of the things, pieces of advice uh, I would give um, myself is to be wary of conventional wisdom. I think um, many well-intending adults have told us Hey, before you do step one, two, and three, you have to do these other things mm -hmm. um, out of, because when I was growing up, this is how it was done. So you should be prepared to follow that same path. Um, but I've noticed innovators of the world um, found ways to break the model, to create new opportunities, not only for themselves, but for the world. Right? We take the Steve Jobs of the world, or you, you take any innovator, um, they didn't follow conventional wisdom, right? Even when the world was saying that's not possible, um, they were saying we should have a computer on everyone's desk in the world. And they were saying, there's no way to do that. That's going to be impossible. And now everyone has three computers, you know, one for their daughter, one for their partner, one for <laughs> themselves, they have a computer in their phone that they can. So you might have five, you have a computer in your office. So these things that were conventional wisdom, as moves forward within our own generation that conventional wisdom gets broken not to say ignore conventional wisdom but only to be weary of it to grapple with it to consider it to listen to it i would um offer my younger self is to put yourself in a position to be able to argue both sides um, mm. understand both sides of an argument thoroughly um so that you can be much more engaged in an intelligent thinker, even issues that you vehemently uh, disagree with. Um, and we have many polar opposite issues in our world and in our society right now that how many of us could really argue both sides of it, really see both perspectives, not to say support both sides. You may have one side that you lean to, whether it's left or right, but do you understand the, what's in the mind of the person on the other side of this? And I think this is a skill that um, is disappearing in our academic institutions because there's this feeling that you have to be either far left or far right, and there's no in-between. There's no capacity or appreciation for um, being able to enjoy both sides of an argument. And then the last thing that I would say to younger Ainsley is choose the path that gives you the most options. Often we pick the easiest path. Um, sometimes the easiest path, when you complete it, you may feel a sense of accomplishment, but it left you with fewer options than if you took the more difficult path. Um, so in so many places in life, you know, earn the, you know, the other degree and work your tail off, earn the PhD rather than the EDD, perhaps, you know, study this discipline, but look at things that leave you with multiple options, because I think that's what richness is about. It's, it's not about financial gain. It's about having options that I could choose 
to work in retail, I could choose to work in higher education, or I can go choose to go to a law firm. But how do you enrich your life in a way that gives you multiple options? That is what I would have talked to younger Ainsley about. Well, you somehow realized that there were other options. I mean, part of the challenge when you're young is um, is to you know, is the ability or capacity to recognize options. And the world seems so much smaller uh, right. in a way than, uh, than uh, you know, we might now see options yes. are always out there for people. It takes, paradoxically enough, I guess, more experience, more life experience to, yeah. to recognize that. Yes. So it's a kind of backwards process, but yeah. it's very good advice yes. indeed. It reminds me of the statement, wisdom is not wasted on the young. Yeah. Right? So when you're 18, I may have heard that piece of advice. Someone may have whispered this to me. I may have read this in an article, but it completely went over my head. I completely sure. ignored it because sure. it, it didn't benefit the immediacy of what I was worried exactly. about or concerned about. But now, you know, 50-year-old version of me is saying, hey, knucklehead, listen to that right so <laughs> yeah. I, I i do imagine the back to the future worlds where i get a chance to sit down with the younger version of me and say listen to this i am coming to you from your future you should do these things but uh, that technology hasn't been invented yet <laughs> <laughs> i hope it won't be actually i'm exhausted enough um i know we haven't got that much time left but maybe in the time we do have you can talk a little about this um, rather bold initiative that you launched, and that's a strategic plan for students, the first of its kind, to my knowledge, in this country, in Canada. I don't know whether others have copied you or have been, certainly they've been inspired by it. I've taken a glance at it. Um, I'm really interested, first of all, in um, how you sold that to your colleagues. Yeah. Um, it's a big initiative and it's so outside the box. It seems so obvious. We have strategic plans for every other bloody thing, <laughs> you know, except you know, like the subjects of our mission, right? Yeah. So tell me a little bit about that. I, I think it's brilliant, brilliant. Noreen, you've answered the question for me. All I would just say to the audience right now, any questions, right? Because yeah. you just answered the question. So well, the most obvious part, was um, upon my arrival coming from the U.S. after you know 20 plus years of higher education work in the United States, I came across the board. And the first thing that I looked at for as vice president for students, what's our plan for students? What is our promise to students? What is our commitment right. to students? Right. Where do we articulate this? Where does a student read it and say, I am choosing that university because they've decided that they're doing these five things for me? Where is that? So I kept asking around because I saw a plan for sustainability. I saw a plan for a trash removal. I saw a plan for the next century. I see an academic vision. I see a, a divestment plan, an investment sustainability plan. Uh, food. So I'm seeing a lot of, but we, there, were, there were a dozen plans I studied in preparation for the role, but I couldn't find that plan for students. I couldn't find it in a current version, nor could I find it in a past version. I kept thinking to myself, I'm sure one of my predecessors had done this before, and I could look back at the 
prior version of this and perhaps update it and forward. Um, so where is that playing? And I met with my staff and team and part of my getting to know the university and listening was asking them, what are our shared agreements in housing and dining and the recreational facilities and the athletic programs and student activities and leadership development? Uh, you know, the VPS portfolio is 25 different departments, but what's the three things that we're doing together to move the student experience forward? And boy, we had a lot of half answers to that um, <laughs> within our student affairs work and outside, even in the academic mission, everyone is kind of, you know, floating on their own bottoms. Everyone is doing their own thing. And I said, okay, we are a collection of units for a purpose. Um, this portfolio exists with the existing units for a purpose. And that purpose is students. We, we can all agree to that. No one will deny that. But collectively, what are we trying to advance for students? So we had that conversation for perhaps a year, um, not only internally and a lot of reflection, but also with students. What's the thing that we're not doing? So I asked students five questions that got us to where we are in our strategic plan. What's working for you? What's not working for you? What must we retain no matter what? What must we end, stop doing no matter what? And then the last question was, what question am I not asking you that you wish you had a chance to talk about? And we did a, more than a dozen listening sessions with a couple hundred students and, and we had transcribers in there taking notes and a group of graduate students who would listen to it, take notes and then take it back to their data research and crunch the themes and the numbers and how many times certain stories and issues came up. And that's how we developed our strategic plan focused on students by listening to their responses to these questions. So then we went back to our group of units and said, here's what we learned from students. Uh, we learned that healthcare is difficult to navigate here. Um, we assume they're you know, 18 years old, they are adults, they know how to navigate healthcare. But you tell that to the student who's moving to Canada from Abu Dhabi or mm -hmm. from Miami or from Los Angeles, welcome to Canada. Um, your healthcare needs are provided in this system. What system, right? They don't know. And we don't make it easy to navigate healthcare on campus. And lo and behold, what these students were telling me was, I go back home for healthcare. So I wait a year with this cold or with this virus or with this mm -hmm. flu in order to see my home doctor because I can't find a local doctor to help me navigate this system, uh, especially international students. If you're from the, the province, you can find it. But if you're coming from another country, so we had this hands-off model of student healthcare that was completely assuming students are fully functioning adults and we should not micromanage their healthcare or help them navigate healthcare, which is obscene. Um, so after we, you know, provided a few examples, a number of people started to say, oh, that kind of makes sense. Three months ago, these students were in high school and their parents were making all their healthcare decisions. Now they show up here at 18 plus years old, near, nearly 19. And we say, go make your own healthcare decisions. And mom is on the other side of the world. So we needed to be more proactive and comprehensive about student healthcare. And we build our model, brought on a chief student health officer, uh, centralized our healthcare entities, moved them all into one building rather than four buildings scattered around campus. But we started to think about things centering the student 
-hmm. and, and we did that with communication, career development, um, the first year experience. So the student strategic plan is all about saying, if we put students in the center, how do we make it easier for them to access excellence and opportunity? And that was the birth of our student strategic plan. And part of one of the points that you made was, um, you know, it's one of the first in Canada. We started by searching other universities. Mm -hmm. We started to say, what are the other universities in Canada doing? We, we can't be the first one to do this. And we couldn't find another student-centered strategic plan. Students are mentioned in strategic plans, granted, yes. But the plan is, is typically so broad that the student can't see themselves in it. Right. The plan is about sustainability and the right. environment and changing the world, which is great. But at the end of the day, the student has no proposition of why they're choosing our institution. Right. And that's what I wanted us to center in our plan. What are we doing for you? Awesome. Yeah, I think the convention, to use that word, and they don't call it convention for nothing, is... Um, <laughs> teaching and learning frameworks, teaching and learning plans, but they tend to be, uh, you know, a kind of elevated view, not necessarily from the student perspective. Students might be consulted, but you're quite right. They often can't locate themselves in those plans with, with any certainty. So I, I think it's a really, it's so obvious at once, um, but not practiced enough. So mm -hmm. I, I think that's a real inspiration, all the work you've, you've done and you're doing. Thank you. And, and Absolutely. Those, those blinders exist in everything. Oh, sure. If we, if we look at our policies, academic and administrative policies, they were designed for a completely different generation of students. And designed in the 70s, totally. and the 80s, and have not been revisited. Suddenly we think about course registration, drop ad dates, who gets housing? Who gets admitted? Right. right. How, how long you could be involved in a student organization or the cost of an activity or cost of lab equipment. Right. Why does a textbook cost $600? Like you would yeah. never walk into a bookstore and purchase a $300 book. <laughs> I, I, know. I don't care who wrote it. And, right. And, you know, right. Why does a chemistry book cost $300? Yeah. So yeah. There, there are so many things that are completely out of whack with today's reality that um, these systems just need to be challenged if we looked at it from a student perspective. It's not easy moving some of these mountains because they have been embedded for so long, but there's so much logic in thinking about, if we think about the anxiety and depression that students are experiencing, the health issues that students are experiencing, in part, it's by our own doing. Mm -hmm. We have put a policy or a practice in place that makes it difficult, unnecessarily, for a student to find a place in a residence hall, for a student mm -hmm. to find a decent meal, for a student to be able to afford the university, for a student to buy textbooks. Mm -hmm. Why would I buy a $300 textbook? We should never allow a $300 textbook. In right. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any economic sense. Yet, that's what the market forces, and we just keep doing it. So I hope you get lots of support for what you do from your colleagues. <laughs> hey, you you know, know, I not mean to put you on the spot, but, you know, um, uh, the kind of energy and uh, kind of fresh way in which you approach um, your, your role and your environment. 
um, probably makes people around you think, oh, this guy's way too idealistic, but you put it into practice. You're putting it into practice. That's right. That's right. And there's a fair share of resistance. I don't, you're, you are, like you said, a recovering administrator. Yeah. You, yeah. Both sides of this equation. So you're fully aware that even the best ideas experience resistance right. for a right. time until yeah. people suddenly say, you know what, that does make sense. And eventually it will become their idea rather than Ainsley's idea. And, sure. and that's what helps it get over the hump. And if you're not concerned about receiving credit, we can accomplish anything. Yeah, so right. I will plant the seeds where they will grow and sit back and wait, deal with the resistance, work with the resistance, um, because ideas take time. Yeah. And that's what I, I am willing to be patient about. But for me, the student is what's most important. And we need to navigate around that. Easley, thank you so much for this, for your time. I've learned a few things. And um, I, I know people listening to this will uh, take from it the same inspired uh, freshness that I feel just talking to you. Thanks so much. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks so much for just taking the time to share with us. Noreen, the pleasure has been mine. I really enjoyed our conversation today. Great. Terrific. Have a good Ciao. day. Mm -hmm. Visit studiosity.com forward slash students first for information on the next Students First Symposium an open forum for faculty, staff, and academics to candidly discuss and progress the issues that matter most in higher education.